0: Well, firstly, let's start with the evidence. The evidence says the average effect of class size is reducing class size is about 0.1 to 0.2. Now, what that means, guys, it's reducing class size enhances achievement. It's a positive effect size. And anybody who argues that they should increase class size is ignoring the evidence. The only reason you could do that is that if the effect there size is is negative. the one and, and only Dr. John is, Hattie. Is
1: John the is the co-author of the Visible Learning book series, which has been a foundation for effective teaching practice and change for so many districts across the world. We
2: chat with John about the research into good learning strategies, how he conducted his research, and how he uses effect size to compare teaching and learning strategies. We learn about the difference between surface learning, deep learning, and transfer learning. And what is the difference between focusing questions and funneling questions? But before we get to all that, hit it!
1: Welcome to the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. I'm Kyle Pierce from tapintoteenminds.com.
2: And I'm John Orr from mrorr-isageek.com.
1: We are two math teachers who, together... With you, the community of educators worldwide who want to build and deliver lessons that spark engagement... Fuel learning... And ignite teacher action. John, this is an episode we've been looking forward to for quite some time. Are you ready to get in? Of course, Kyle. Of course. We are super pumped to bring you this episode. Awesome. Before we do, we want to give a quick shout out to Aggie am 95 who left us a five-star rating and review on iTunes. Thank you, Aggie am 95 Here's what she
2: says. Resources and ideas you can use tomorrow. I teach seventh grade math, and I love to listen to other educators and researchers to help me improve my craft. Kyle and John do an amazing job of bringing in guests who share valuable insight and share great resources. Every episode leaves me with several aha moments. If you want to be more effective in the classroom, this podcast is definitely worth your time. If
1: you've been loving the podcast, leave us a review on iTunes just like Aggie Am95 did by outlining your biggest takeaway. Reviews help more educators hear about the show, and in turn, we can help make more math moments matter for students everywhere.
2: Also, the Make Math Moments That Matter podcast is excited to bring you the Math Moments with Corwin Mathematics book giveaway. That's right. We'll be giving away 10 books from Corwin Mathematics, including John's book, Visible Learning in Mathematics. Plus, you'll receive special Corwin discounts and digital downloads just for entering the draw. You can get in on the giveaway by visiting makemathmoments.com forward slash giveaway by Wednesday, July 31st, 2019. Listening after July 31st,
1: 2019, no sweat, we're always running a giveaway and you can access it through that same link. So head to
2: makemathmoments.com
1: forward slash giveaway and you'll see the current giveaway that we are offering.
2: Don't miss out. Dive in to makemathmoments.com forward slash giveaway.
1: That's makemathmoments.com forward slash giveaway. And that brings us to the main event, which is our chat with John. We hope you enjoy. Hey there, John. Welcome to the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. We are so excited to have you on the show today. How are things over on the other side of the world in Australia?
0: Hi, Kyle and John. It's um, middle of winter over here, so it's quite a cool, brisk morning. And I'm very envious of the fact that you have such really high heat over where you are, and I hope you're really enjoying it.
2: <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's like at the time of this recording, we're having like record heat waves here in southern Ontario. Uh, John, we know about you from your research and your books, but could you do us a favor and help our listeners understand a little bit about yourself and your background?
0: Sure. Um, I started, uh, born in New Zealand, then I went and did my PhD in your part of the world, in the University of Toronto.
1: Nice, nice.
0: Yeah, wonderful place to be. That was in the 1970s. I know it's changed a lot since then, but it was certainly a very quiet and wonderful place to be, particularly for a PhD student. Then I've my background and my training in, in OSU was in measurement and statistics, and that has been my career until this thing called visible learning came along. And I've worked in various universities in Australia, in North America, in New Zealand. I'm now a very proud grandfather of three beautiful granddaughters and um, enjoying those wonders of life.
1: Fantastic. Yeah, we are very excited to learn more and discuss some of that work around visible learning. But before we get there, for those who have listened to the podcast before, they know it is the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast, because we always like to ask our guests about a memorable math moment from your learning experience. So this could be as a student, it could be as a teacher, an educator, a researcher, but what comes to mind when we say math class? What memory pops into your mind?
0: Oh, that's easy for me because when I went through high school, it was compulsory to take maths. We didn't have the option of dropping it, and if we had that option, I probably would have dropped it. I did okay, but I wasn't that enthused about it until I got up to my final year in high school, and we had a teacher, Mr. Tomlinson, and he was, oh, wow, he was very strict, disciplinarian, but he made sure every single one of us understood maths, and uh, I remember the very first class he gave us the end-of-the-year exam. And we're all devastated to get zero. And he stood up and said, my job is to demonstrate to you that I can help you get to the end of the year and pass this thing. And during the year, he gave us the odd item from the end of the year and showed us we could do this. And he just never gave up on us. He was unbelievably fair. And he really drummed the maths into us to the point that I realized, hey, I could do this. This is fun. And as you heard, as a consequence, I went on PhD kind of statistics area. I look back on that moment and said, a great teacher made a dramatic difference to me. And it was a math teacher.
2: Awesome. I always find it so fascinating when we think about moments from our experience in school. And Kyle and I have said here on the podcast many times that we rarely remember the actual math. We remember more social moments and also uh, moments where people have impacted us. And I definitely resonate with your moment, having, you know, senior level math teachers that have impacted me and made impressions on me. For me, you know, like it's not necessarily a math moment, but say my gym teacher, my volleyball coach was a huge impact on me growing up and it shaped the way you know i viewed the world and solve problems and tackled things so i totally resonate with that
0: and just on that it's kind of interesting and in that we actually published an article recently where we took close to a thousand adults and asked them about their memorable teacher and it all came down to two things one is that teacher turned them on to their passion or and or that teacher saw something in them they didn't see in themselves. not once you're right not once do they have a memorable moment about their teacher because of a particular subject. It was one of those two things.
2: Yeah. I think back my high schooling and even sometimes my university, I only remember the adults and the people who led those discussions or led those, my classrooms. So definitely huge, huge moments that we as educators have and a responsibility to our students, because those are the things that they're going to remember, not necessarily the math and most likely the lessons. Kyle and I's kind of job lately is to try to change that, to help them remember those lessons and us as educators. John, uh, We'd love to just uh, now kind of dive into your book, Visible Learning. And something that's always been very curious to me is where did the idea originate to write Visible Learning, which has, you know, since exploded into a huge series focusing on effective teaching practices in different subject areas and all over the world. Do you mind sharing with us kind of that origin story?
1: Hey, Math Moment Makers, Kyle here. Head to mickmathmoments.com forward slash district and grab a spot in our calendar
0: now. Yeah, it sort of started right from my very first days as an academic. And as a person who teaches all those courses that I'm sure you love to do on research and statistics, you were welcomed but kind of tolerated. And each of my colleagues took me aside and said, if you're going to make a difference in this world, you're going to have to study. And the first one told me curriculum and someone said communication. Of course, someone in 1976 said computers. And it was fascinating. They all knew the answer and they're all different. And then I got into teacher education and it was the same phenomena. Every teacher that we met out in the schools kind of said nicely, ignore all that stuff at university and just watch me. And then you read all the research articles. And what stunned me is every article you read shows evidence that what they did kind of worked. And so it started from that notion of how come we're in a business? where everybody knows truth, everything works. Like, guys, have you ever met a teacher yet who said they were below average? And so this was the phenomenon that I looked at, and I thought, well, maybe the question we're asking is the wrong question. What we typically ask is what works. Maybe what we should be asking is what works best. Now, the irony for me was that in 1976, Gene Glass introduced this concept called meta-analysis. And as a management person, I thought, well, the best way to learn about it is to do what. And so I did one and from there thought, well, maybe I could actually start synthesizing the meta analyses. Now, in the early days, there weren't enough. It was a very small area. But over the years, I'd systematically do this to try and answer that or change that question from what works to what works best and to see if I could unravel the problem of why it is that every teacher knew truth. Because we were kids. We know that's not the case. They vary. And so, obviously, what I've discovered is that teachers are kind of right. If you set the benchmark, at can I improve student learning, there is good evidence that 95 to 97% of teachers can correctly say they can do that. But it's such a low barrier. And so changing that low barrier for what works, can we enhance learning, can we do it to a sufficient level, is kind of where it all started.
1: Yes, interesting. That's really interesting. I think, you know, it's like we all have this unconscious bias, right? I'm trying to remember which book I was reading, but recently it came up where there was some research about just this idea that most people believe they're better than average at pretty much everything. <laughs> you know, and nobody thinks that they're less than average, but, you know, I'm a better than average driver. I'm a better than average teacher. I'm a better than average friend. I'm a better than average uh, parent. Actually, parents probably would disagree. We always feel like we're not doing a great job, but that might be the only exception. I don't know if you can speak to that at all. Like, did some of that sort of come at you? It sounds like obviously you noticed something when, you know, you'd mention that. How come everyone knows true? truth and obviously students are learning you know every day whether we're there or not so obviously like you said most students are walking away with some new learning but I guess the question would be is was it because of what we were doing versus doing something else and that really fascinates me
0: oh yeah and so the floor of the average is certainly the case and it's the same way that if you ask in your class today which kid is average it's kind of an absurd question We in education work on variability and how the spread of of abilities, the spread of what kids do, and that really is the essence of what we're doing. And so when you go back to your question, when teachers say they're above average, then the other side of our bias is we always can find five or six kids in every class that are learning, maybe despite us. It is always the case that teachers do have evidence that they are above average. And so part of it is not to deny that. Part of it is to say, well, let's look at what average is. Average is not enhancing learning. Average, to me, is every student deserves at least a year's growth for a year's input. And understanding what that year's growth is, is obviously the key then their next question. And that's where you start to get variability, and that's where you start to get traction with teachers, because certainly in your country, 60 to 70% of teachers are doing that now. They're getting above a year's growth for a year's input. And recognizing that excellence is out there and growing it is what our business should be all about. Now, unfortunately... 30 to 40% of teachers are not. And so that changes the nature of the equation dramatically. And so one of the major themes of all my work is have the courage to identify that excellence, form coalitions of impact around that excellence, and then invite those other teachers to join. Because that's the other thing that I observe from the very early days is that in education, we have so much evidence about failure. And I remember Ross Trout, my supervisor, saying to me when I graduated from Toronto, why don't you be one of those rare academics that go out there and study success? We do have incredible success. And so let's stop saying why isn't this working and ask the question, why is it working so well? And that's kind of what visible learning is. We know there is so much working well, capturing that and spreading that message. Right.
2: And that kind of leads us into our next question. Like uh, when we're asking the question, like what's working, but what's working the most or what's working well, you use the term and it's that uh, effect size throughout your series. Do you mind helping the math moment maker community here understand what do you mean when you talk about effect size in, in the series and how that all works?
0: Effect sizes are a measure of size, measure of magnitude. Those in the math stats community will all know about statistical significance, which has its place. But the other part of what we should look at for every study is what's the size of the effect. And there are two main ways of estimating an effect size. One is the difference between two means, like the mean when you introduce, say, inquiry learning, and the mean when you don't do it, divided through by the pooled standard deviation. Um, The other is doing a pre-post. You do a pre test, you do a post test, you subtract the two and you divide by, again, the appropriate estimate of the pooled variance in that case. And so the beauty of an effect size is that it is scale free. So it doesn't matter what the test was, how many items, all those kind of things It's scale free. And that way you can then compare different studies, different outcomes. And that's been the big breakthrough. Now, there's a hang of a lot more to meta analysis than just that. But that's the essence of it is coming up with a scale free measure of effect size so you can say, impact of this variable is higher or lower than the impact of that variable. As I said, there's a lot of details you'd worry about, but that's the essence of an effect size. The beauty is teachers can calculate it in their classrooms using their own measures, and they can then compare everything to what's in the visible learning book And that's the beauty of an effect size.
1: Beautiful, beautiful. And, you know, to help people understand, uh, I love this idea, this comparison to what is equivalent to like a year's learning. You had mentioned like a year's worth of input and getting that year's worth of output. So for someone who's sitting and listening, maybe running or in the car listening to this podcast, what's reasonable for that year's worth of input in terms of the effect size?
0: Well, let me start with the notion of the average. When I analyze the NAEP, No Child Left Behind, SAT in England, NAPLAN in Australia, EASL in New Zealand, and I take all that data from the last 10, 20 years and say what's the average effect size when kids go from one year to the other, it's exactly 0.4, which is the same as what I found in Visible Learning using a different data set. So that's a first very crude guideline. And I say it's crude because it's the average. If you're looking at a very narrow concept, vocabulary, that average will go up. If you look at something wide like creativity, that average will go down. If you look at five-year-olds doing reading, that average will go up. If you look at 15-year-olds you reading, that average will go down. So context matters. And so one of the things that we do in our work is we triangulate the evidence. We go into schools and we say to them, we want to talk about this notion of a year's growth. Let's look at the scores that you have on the tests you have. Let's look at artifacts of kids' work. Bring along two pieces of kids' work six months apart, the same kid, and let's have a debate about whether we think that's sufficient growth for, say, six months. Let's ask the students about their sense of progress and triangulating that. And what you find is you find, again, unfortunately, so much variability. And one of the hardcore realities, guys, is that if teachers think a year's growth is about an effect size of 0.2, they're remarkably successful at getting at it. If teachers think effect size is 0.6, they're very successful at getting at it. But it's that triangulation, it's that debate, and it's also that debate about what you mean by impact. Because when I say, no, they impact, it's not just the test scores. It's the sense of whether the school's an inviting place for kids to come to. It's the sense of whether the kids are prepared to invest and have a joy in the learning. It's the sense of the affect, of respect for self, respect for others. And so what in the school is their basket of goods? What is their evidence from various sources that they're getting their growth? And if you don't have these discussions, then it's, unfortunately, you're leaving it to the randomness of the teachers to decide. And that's why it's the hard part. It comes back to how teachers think about these things. And we've had so much debate in our business about what teachers do. And I bet on your podcast, on oodles of evidence around the world, we talk about different teaching methods. We talk about all the context variables. And my work is saying, no, it's not about that. It's about how we think. I wish it was easier, but it's not. And one of the ways in which we think is our concept of what that year's growth is. So I'm not giving you a simple answer. I'm not saying it's just point four because it's not as simple as that. But it really is critical that we have debates in schools about what we mean, particularly in our mass community, about what we think this looks like. And then the argument is that every kid, no matter where they start, deserves at least a year's growth. And I say at least because some kids need more than that. And that is what drives all our work.
2: I can only imagine how difficult it must have been when you try to collect and analyze all this data, and especially when we're thinking all these teachers know the answer or it's anecdotal. I'm wondering if you can help us understand how you collected this data and did a little bit of the analysis. I guess not too technical, but I think a lot of teachers out there are probably wondering, like, how did you kind of come up with the effect size?
0: It's good squirrel behavior. Like a meta-analysis is where someone takes other people's work clock the effect size, and then looks at the various moderators. What I do is I take their meta-analysis and synthesize that at the higher level. It really isn't difficult work to do. It's just squirrel work. Now, the good news is last week at the uh, Annual Visible Learning Conference in Las Vegas, we released all the data on a website called MetaX. And so if anyone wants to see all the data from the 1600 meta-analyses, they're all there because my argument is no one since I started this has ever queried the underlying model and the explanation that I've had. People have queried and had hassles about all the little details of this, that, the other stuff. And so I'm saying, well, let's break through all those little details. Here's all the data. You don't have to spend the last 40 years of your life collecting it. It's all available to you. Come up with a better theory, a better explanation. So it really isn't very difficult stuff. It's just tedious. It's me collecting other people's meta-analyses and synthesizing those. I
1: can only imagine how difficult that could be to read. And even if an educator is trying to go to the research and you get one research paper over here with this data over here and then there's data over here and like how do they all compare? So it sounds like the visible learning work has taken all of this and tried to put it almost like it's on the same playing field, right? On the same scale so that now we could actually do some comparison. So now I'm wondering, for those who are listening, and I know John and I know quite well many of the very highest effect size approaches, we're wondering which ones tend to come out on top based on some of that analysis.
0: Well, there's two things that dominate the top of the charts. One is teacher expertise the way they think. It's not what they do. Uh, That's been a big mistake to promote certain kinds of ways in which we teach because you can have a teacher using the same method and getting different effects because of the moment-by-moment judgments. We're spending a lot of our research work looking at that thinking of teachers, and it comes back to this notion of evaluative thinking, how they make decisions about whether it's worth it, whether it's valuable, significant, on a moment-by-moment basis. And the second thing that dominates is student thinking. And one of the things that's a worry is that some students have multiple ways of learning. So if the first doesn't work, they can default to another one. And by multiple ways, I mean two or three, not 10 or 15. Some students don't. And when they something doesn't work and the teacher asks them to do another problem, they use the same method. It doesn't work. Unfortunately, sometimes we classify those kids as bright kids and struggling kids. And our argument is not. It's not that at all. It's like we need to teach kids. The, that sort of metacognitive notion that if something doesn't work, try another strategy. Now, when I was reviewing recently, we have about 18,000 scripts of teachers' classrooms, actual classrooms um, as they teach them. And when I was going through those to find examples of when teachers taught kids different strategies, after 4,000 hours, I gave up because I couldn't find one. And so there's a very serious problem there. And your maths is a classic example that where kids do need different perspectives, different strategies. And our argument is they can be taught. And that's what we should be worried about. It's not just getting the answer right or wrong. It's what's the strategy. Like, when was the last time you walked into a classroom, John and Kyle, and heard your math kids thinking aloud? Um, and that's what we need to do to understand what their conceptions are, their misconceptions, how they're making mistakes. Like, if you went to a Japanese classroom in maths and a kid made a mistake, the teacher would say, well, let's understand how that kid made that mistake because you can guarantee there's others in the class that would do it. Now, we don't do that in the Western world because we're fearful of affecting a kid's self-esteem, as we should. But we unfortunately then default and we hide it and the kids think it's just getting the right answer. But that process to get there and the different ways of thinking is what we need to be a a to a hang of a lot more. So beautifully, but ironically, the top of the chart comes down to aspects of teacher thinking and aspects of student thinking.
1: I love that you've referenced this idea of kids thinking aloud and you know these are things that I think we know in Ontario here where we are from we've been working on these things for quite some time but it doesn't necessarily mean it's happening all the time. When you had mentioned actual mathematical discourse, and I actually have many different versions of the visible learning uh, series, but the one for mathematics in particular, there's quite a bit in there about mathematical discourse. And there's also reference to the NCTM effective teaching practices, which I thought was really phenomenal. So lots of key pieces. We actually had Dr. Peg Smith on the podcast last week, it was just released. And some of her work comes out in this particular book as well. So it's great to hear you sharing some of the same philosophy that John and I try to share with this idea of the math classroom shouldn't be this quiet place, right? We want to make sure that kids are actually doing the thinking, they're doing the talking so that they can actually reflect on their learning and try to figure out where they need to go next. So I'm wondering here, we were going to ask this a little bit later, but I'd love to sidestep this here because we actually had asked on Twitter, a number of people out there. And we asked what would be the questions that you would ask John Hattie, if he was to come on the podcast, and we got a lot of responses. Uh, I'm going to flip it to john john, which one do you think we should head to because john was indicating to me that it would be great to uh, flip to one of the responses from Twitter. So I'm going to let him set this up for you.
2: Yeah, this is a question from Adrienne Burns. And this is something that's always been on my mind too. She asks you, John, like which aspect or piece of your research findings or your work do you feel could be or is misunderstood or misrepresented by educators or other districts? She put in brackets here, I'm assuming some part has been distorted or misinterpreted because that is the kind of nature of the beast with kind of stuff like this. I think uh, a few teachers are wondering this too, because so many districts do use your work as kind of their focus and guidelines for professional development. So I guess she's wondering, kind of, do you know, or have you heard, or do you wonder which piece of your work has, say, maybe been misunderstood or misrepresented?
0: Like I'm actually very soon releasing a white paper, identifying all the criticisms of visible learning that I can find. And there's about 30 40 of them. Two thirds of them relate to one thing, and that is that league table. And in many cases, it worked for me because it attracted attention to the book. On the other hand, it's been a liability. And the biggest mistake people make is they look at that league table. Uh, sorry, I'm doing all the stuff at the top. I'm not doing any of the stuff at the bottom. And that wasn't supposed to be my message. My message was what's underlying and discriminating between the top half and the bottom half. And it's interesting when you look at the criticisms, two-thirds of them, my hunch is that people criticize the league table and they've never read the book. Like they say, well, you can't possibly have those individual influences. They overlap. Well, the whole book is about the overlap. And they talk about how sometimes the effect sizes change. Clearly, that means that the research is wrong. Well, of course it changes as new evidence and new meta-analyses came out. And so I could go on and on and on. And so I don't use that league table anymore. We call it the matrix of influences. We try and press the notion of what that fundamental message is. And so that's probably been the biggest misunderstood aspect. And so when you look at some of the critics out there, particularly in the academic journals, they query and they quibble about all those details. And as I said before, not one of them has really addressed what the underlying model is about you know, the teacher thinking, the student thinking, compared to the structural issues. And I just find that fascinating that the biggest criticism has been about one page, which has been taken out of context and misinterpreted
1: totally, totally. And you know, you referenced it earlier as well. I think it's so important, like you had said, that you could have two different teachers who are trying to do the same approach, and it happens completely differently, and the results are going to be different as well. So when we're taking this data, it's like on average, and you kept mentioning this idea of the average, and we're really looking at comparing all of that data that's out there, and this is sort of how it all stacked up. And I guess what we're thinking is that hopefully, you know, the ones that landed higher up on the table, it's likely because those teachers were doing those approaches in a really effective way, right?
0: Well, high probability interventions. And you know, as mathematicians, we understand that. There's a high probability compared to other ones that these will make a difference. I want you then to know your impact. I want you then to investigate and evaluate the impact you're having when you introduce high impact probability interventions. And that's why I've moved to that notion of knowing by impact. I want you to know your impact.
1: Right. And you know, something that's really interesting as well is that if I go to that table and I say, okay, so the research is telling me that these tend to be effective and then I am using it and it's not working for me, then I should be reflective on my own practice and say, maybe I'm missing something here. So especially as you articulated, if I just go to the table and I just look and see, okay, I'm going to do that now, but I haven't actually read or learned about how to do those things well, that could be a really tough sell. Even
0: more than that, it may be some kids mm-hmm. are benefiting mm-hmm. and other kids are mm-hmm. not, so you should look at that as well. Right, right,
1: exactly. And does that mean that we don't do it for all the kids because it's not working for some, or we do it for all the kids because it is working for some, or is that where differentiation comes in, right?
0: The concept of differentiation is a differentiation of our teaching. Whereas so often we think of differentiation is differentiation of activities, different activities for different kids. And if you go back and read the research on differentiation, it's that's exactly what you shouldn't do. You should allow for similar success criteria, but different time and different ways to get there for kids. But that's unfortunately not what often happens.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. You know, I had gone to some differentiation workshops early in my career. And that was at least the message I interpreted. It doesn't necessarily mean that was the intended message. But the message I received was, I have to make five versions of the same problem. And, you know, in reality, at the end of the day, if the problems that I'm giving different students or the tasks that I'm having them do, aren't actually addressing the learning goal or the learning intention, then that's not going to actually help those students, right? I mean, they might be able to accomplish the task, but it doesn't help them accomplish the learning that we set out for all the students in the classroom. So something we noticed in the table and and a lot of the pieces near the top of the table really had this metacognition, this part where students were taking ownership of their learning. And one in particular was self-reported grades and student expectations comes out on top with that effect size of 1.44. That's more than three times of that hinge point of 0.4 that you referenced earlier. Now, I'm wondering, just to get your own perspective on this, with state, provincial, even district policies in place around assessment and valuation, including grades and how we comment or create Comments and other challenges. Do you have any tips for educators who are eager to try applying some of these high yield approaches? Like, how might they create the conditions to implement something like self reported grades in their math classroom?
0: Yeah, that's a fascinating one. And over the years, I've certainly struggled to come up with the best ways of looking at that word. What we've been doing now is turning that more into assessment capable students because that's something you can actually action. And the argument there is. Like the next time you give your class an assessment or a test, before they do the assessment, ask them to put at the top what grade they're going to get. Fortunately or unfortunately, kids by the age of eight are pretty accurate at estimating it. And so you have to seriously ask why you would ever bother giving the test. And our argument is you give the test to find out to you what you taught well, who you taught well, and what the magnitude is. And that changes the notion, firstly, of assessment as feedback to you as the teacher. Because it actually doesn't give much feedback to the students because they already know what the answer, what their grade is going to be. But on the other hand, what we want to do is we want to teach them to interpret the results from their assessment. And so, again, when you give the assessment back to your class next week, wait a day so it's not just short term memory and ask the students, what do they understand by the feedback that you gave them? What do you understand by what you're going to do next? And unfortunately, it's a pretty barren discussion. Most kids look at the grade. Most kids say, yeah, I expected about that. And that's despite you guys spending all your Sunday afternoons writing screens and screens of comments. How do you teach the kids to interpret the feedback? How do you teach them to know where to go next? And because what you're trying to do here is you're trying to change their expectations about what they can and can't do. Because if they know that they're a C student and they perform at that level, in a sense, they're satisfied. And that's just not good enough. We want them to be a B student. And so there's that notion of, it's kind of like going to the notion of feedback. Like I spent many years of my research career trying to understand how teachers could give more feedback. Well, the first thing you know in the classroom is teachers already give lots of feedback. And it turns out it's the wrong question. The right question is, how do you increase the amount of feedback that a student receives and understands? And that, unfortunately, is in an average classroom about two or three seconds a day. Most kids know that when you give feedback to the whole class, it's not about them. Most kids know when they get an assignment back, the grade is about as much feedback as they're going to get. And so the assessment capable learning, the student expectation notion is, how do we teach the kids to be party to understanding and interpreting where they need to go next. Because if you think of the definition of the perfect student, the educated person, it's the person who knows what to do and they don't know what to do. And that's what we want them to do in our math class is, well, I couldn't do that. How do I get help? Where do I go to next? Not, oh, I couldn't do that, therefore I can't do it. And so that's why that notion of student thinking, student expectation is so powerful. And you say you know, it's three or four times the, the average effect. It's actually double the effect of the teacher expectation. It's very, very powerful.
2: I'm so glad you brought that or you mentioned that about helping kids understand what to do next. It's part of the reason and exactly how Kyle and I have modified our assessment approaches a number of years ago to including like full class days dedicated to exactly that. we are tired of kids, you know, handing back our quizzes or tests and kids looking at the mark like you said and just kind of going, okay, that's exactly what I predicted and tossing it in the trash or filing in the binder and never looking at it again. And one of the ways that we changed right away was that We only wrote comments on how to fix that work and didn't write grades on it anymore because like you said, the kids who knows that they're a C-level student, when they get the C, they're like, yeah, I'm done. Instead, when they don't see the C, they were like, okay, well, what did I get on it? And we're like, well, you're not at your level yet or you're not showing proficiency yet. You need to change it. So they might have had the C and quit. But the fact that you've not wrote that C on there, they now imagining like, I got to do better. And so then they fix it. You know, we're spending full class day a week now helping our kids understand that just accepting some of those grades doesn't mean you're done. Like we always want to strive towards kind of making it perfect. And and it was one of the messages I share in the first week of class is that every quiz you're going to write or every test you're going to write or every assessment that you're going to do in this class will become perfect. And that's part of our goals during our time together is that we're not going to just accept that mark that you thought you might have got or that mark you got just because you got the 60% in September. It doesn't mean that that's where you're going to stay on that particular learning goal by the time we get to January. So I'm super glad that you mentioned that because I think that's super important. Hey there, math moment
1: makers. Are you a dedicated listener? Like I'm talking, have you been listening for a couple of months, maybe even a couple of years
0: but the one thing I'd probably want to talk to you more about is I would not ignore the mark. I think it is about that. I think there's information in the mark, but I like what you're doing as critically as well. And what we're doing is we're using the notion of personal bests. And that often needs an anchor. And so, yeah, you got a C last time. Let's go for a C plus. And this is how you do it. And that highlights, again, the importance of the where to next and what you understand and what you don't understand. I think the discussion about whether it's grades or marks is a bit of a folly because both can be powerful in maximizing kids' learning. And when you talk about perfect, there is a concept of what perfect looks like, and that is an A plus grade. And so working the kids on this notion of personal best, and in a sense, personal bests are kind of like many success yeah. criteria. Really, yeah. that is all kids. They have a clear understanding of what a personal best is, and it's about striving to do better than what you did yesterday with help. Of expertise. Uh,
2: That makes complete sense that they need a benchmark to see where they were and where they want to go. So that's a good tip for sure. We're going to switch gears here just for a sec, but we love referencing, love that you reference the funneling and focusing questions uh, so much that we have discussed them here on previous episodes with some of our former guests. Can you help the Math Moment Maker community understand the difference between funneling and focusing questions?
0: (laughs) Especially when you look at Uh, a typical classroom, classroom, and again, as I say earlier, we have about 14,000 to 18,000 teacher scripts. And you ask questions like, what's the average time teacher's talk? It's 89% of the time. When you ask the nature of teacher questions, about 250 a day is the typical one. But when you ask about what those questions are about, they're always about the facts. They're very content-based. And then when you ask, how many questions does a class ask a day about their work where they don't know the answer? So I'm ruling out what page am I on? Can I go to the toilet? And the answer per class is about two. And that's what we want to change with the notion of the funding and the focusing questions is to get the students to be more involved in asking questions about the things they don't know. And that requires an incredible amount of trust. And then it's this notion of the looking at the nature of the student questions, which is a real luxury when you consider that two's the average per class. And it's how you can get the students to ask questions about the strategies they're using or they're not using, if they can ask questions about for you to understand where they start to understand and where that understanding breaks down whether the connections are right or whether they're wrong, and how you can get them to focus specifically on the task they're looking at the moment, how they can look at questions that move them to other directions, and probably the hardest thing in our business, how they can then transfer the understanding for what they're doing now to the next problem.
1: You know, something that's interesting to me, and I think about this a lot, is I know – Trying to get my own mind wrapped around this idea of asking more focusing questions in my classroom. I'm wondering, have you bumped into any research or any data that would suggest where a certain level of teacher content knowledge and just that expertise that they have under their belt can allow them to ask and plan for better focusing questions, especially those that are in the moment. Because, I mean, we talk about anticipating before our lesson using the five practices for orchestrating productive discussions. And in there, we talk about this anticipating stage is so important to make sure that when we go into a lesson that we know, or at least know that some students are going to do things in certain ways, but then there's still some surprises. And I can only imagine that teacher expertise must really, really impact the effectiveness of being able to ask a good question, like a focusing question, over those sort of fact-focused funneling questions all the time. Do you have any thoughts on that or any research that you've sort of bumped into that you can share with us?
0: Oh, yeah. It's one of the... um i spent 15 years on this question, trying to understand why it is that teacher subject matter knowledge, however you define it, pedagogical content, you name it, has an effect size of about 0.09. It just doesn't make sense. And as I said, i spent 15 years trying to understand this, and I'm sure it bothers the heck out of you guys that really, if I brought an English teacher into teach your math class tomorrow, it doesn't make a difference. And if you went and taught the English class, it doesn't make a difference. And that bothers me. And it really does come back when you look at why that is the case, in many ways, to that difference between focus and funneling. And it turns out that the reason why subject matter knowledge doesn't matter is because of how we teach. Like, go back to what I said before if 90% of the questions you ask and the reactions you give to your students is about the facts, all you need to do is be one page ahead of the kids. And that's why subject matter doesn't matter because we so focus on the factual knowledge. Now, when you come to the f- things like focusing questions, where you do have to understand what the misconceptions kids can make, you do need a deep understanding of the math to understand, oh, that's how they went there and that's why they didn't do this. You do need to have a lot more subject matter knowledge and expertise to understand about the where to next in light of each kid's dilemmas and the way they go about problem solving. And certainly what you find is teachers who have that expertise, and who teach in a way where they have more focused questions than funneling questions, then subject matter knowledge matters a lot. But the reason it doesn't matter is because so often we go straight on to going on to the next part. Oh, well, you didn't understand that. Try this problem. Uh, here's some more factual knowledge. Ask the kids questions. Put your hand up if you know the right answer as opposed to put your hand up if you don't know the right answer. And so absolutely teacher expertise matters under the circumstance where particular kind of teaching happens such as focusing versus funneling.
1: Like I've got chills listening to you say that because, you know, I have had some questions in the past looking at the list where there are those surprises where you sort of go, oh, wait a second, what does this mean then? And even going back to the, you know, we had asked about whether some of the research or some of the results can be misinterpreted. I can only imagine that some districts actually take that and they sort of make an assumption one way instead of what you've just articulated here. And I couldn't help but also wonder, another big one was the idea, idea of inquiry-based learning. And I would love to hear your perspective on this, because for me, I feel that inquiry-based learning is so helpful but only if it's being done well, you know, and that's really difficult to do if you don't have that expertise under your belt, that content knowledge, also that pedagogical knowledge, I think really both of those two things are so important in order to actually teach effectively with inquiry based learning. So it doesn't just become aimless. And I'm wondering if you can help fill us in. A, I know the effect size in the are at least in the chart that I have. And that might have changed since, like you said, with new data coming out. But the effect size was 0.31 for inquiry-based learning, which isn't nearly as low as the 0.09 we just discussed, but it was lower than I guess I was hoping to see because I was thinking to myself, oh my goodness, I want to provide the conditions in my classroom to guide students through that process so that they can own some of the learning along the way. So I'm wondering, can you help us out with your perspective on that?
0: Well, yeah. And, uh, if you look at anything that's got a deep focus, like problem-based learning, point 0.1, discovery learning right down there near the bottom. And it's kind of like you're saying is that that doesn't mean you don't do them. That means you ask the question why. You accept the evidence that they're typically not working and ask why they're not working. And I've certainly done that particularly for problem-based learning, because I get a lot of criticisms from people. Of course, all your stuff must be wrong because I know it's not true. And if you come into my class, you'll see I do it. And you think those people are not listening to the evidence. The evidence is that typically not working. And so when you look at why, like, let me give you a hint. Problem-based learning is used dramatically high levels in first-year medicine at universities. We have done 14 meta-analyses. We don't need to do another study to know that it has a zero to negative impact on those medical students. But if you introduce problem-based medicine in fourth-year medicine, the effect size goes up to 0.5. And so that was the hint that maybe go back to all the problem-based meta-analyses and ask the question about the timing of the intervention. And that's where it starts to become sensible. If you go into problem-based learning before the students have the subject matter knowledge, it has a very low to negative impact. And that's why I am very concerned when people say, oh, I'm a problem-based learner, I use discovery learning. And that kind of religious zeal is where the problem comes. And it goes back to the discussion we had at the start of this podcast. It's about the notion of differentiation of teaching. There's a right moment to do discovery-based, inquiry-based. There was a wrong moment. And what I find fascinating is like Bob Mazzano came out with a book a couple of years ago, 480 Different Teaching Methods. And we thought, oh, this is great. And we went through them and said, which one of them focus on the surface, the content, and which one of them focus on the deep and the relationships? And it turns out that there's one, maybe two out of the 485 that do both at the same time. Problem-based learning, discovery learning is excellent for deep thinking, but it's not so good for content-based. And so that's why it's so low is because of that lack of expertise, that lack of understanding by teachers who introduce it before the kids are ready for it. And so that helps resolve what the problem is. There's a right time. That's why we call our model the Kenny Rogers model. You got to know when to hold them. You got to know when to try them.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. You know, that is so helpful. And I have a video. I'll put the link in the show notes for those who are listening, because you did discuss a bit about this idea of inquiry learning. And it makes a lot of sense to me because I fear that sometimes people, when they try to do inquiry learning, what they end up doing is they start with something that is too high level. And, you know, something John and I advocate all the time on the show is about having tasks that are low floor, but high ceiling, right? you know, tasks that we can actually vertically mathematize, we can actually help students to get beyond where they're at now and really go deeper, but it's not leaving a bunch of students behind as well because, you know, where you see students just falling right off the map when you come in with this really high level, rich task and it's rigorous and it's all of these things that makes you feel great as an educator because you're really going to help these students, but you're not really helping all the students. You're only helping some of the students. And, you know, that I think really helps me to understand this. I'm wondering, you know, you mentioned, and Surface versus deep. Do you mind going? Ju- I know we're getting close here. We don't want to uh, hold you too too much longer, but I did want to talk to you a little bit about surface versus deep versus even transfer knowledge. Can you help for someone who's at home and that's a new term for them? What is the difference between them, and sort of what roles do they play in the learning process?
0: Yep, yeah, the roles. All the roles of the three parts are very critical. The surface is the the content, the facts, the knowledge. The deeper is the relationship between those ideas and the transfer is then applying those facts and those relationships to different contexts. And all three of them are important. Sometimes we denigrate the facts side of things and say, oh, they don't need to know facts. They don't need to overlearn. They don't need to do memorization. Well, actually, they do so they can move on to do the relationships. In many ways, we don't want to say that it's that linear, that you do the facts, then you do the relationships, then you do the transfer. But it certainly is the case that you do need to attend to all three parts as you're teaching your mathematics. There are things kids need to know. But then when you go on to your problems and look at the relationships, you do need to ask about, do they have the sufficient knowledge to get to the relationships? And sometimes we switch back and then over-focus on the knowledge side of it. Or some teachers, we were talking before about problem-based learning, over-focus on the relationship side of things. But it's getting that balance. And in any lesson, um, you switch between the surface, the deep, and the transfer. And we find that a very useful distinction to not only look at how you go about your teaching and your lesson planning, but also to help the students understand that there are three different parts to the equation of learning mathematics. But we also do that in our, our assessment. We separate out. We say to the students for any particular instance, this is the surface level question. These are the things we need you to know, and these are the deep-level questions. We've also, in our latest work, started to split up our success criteria and talk about the surface-level success criteria in the deep. And again, when you go back to our students, what do they understand by doing mathematics? Too often, unfortunately, they think it's kids who are good at mathematics who are kids who know lots. And I bet that's not what you want to have in the kids. You want them to know lots and be able to use them. And so this distinction between surface and deep and transfer, we find a very powerful one.
1: Awesome. I love how you'd mentioned that really all three are important. It's not, you know, when I think about in mathematics specifically, a lot of times you'll hear people talking about, you know, back to basics or some say inquiry, learning, discovery, all of these things. And you've done a great job. And I see a connection here where it's showing that like these things can all be, they are all important and we have to have them all. And when I picture surface deep and transfer learning, I kind of picture like almost like a continuous cycle, not one after the other, but just this idea that as you're working on surface learning of this idea over here, you could be going into deep learning about something that you have learned in the past. Like it's really this almost like an ecosystem for learning, right? Like you have to have them all. It's not turning one on and turning one off.
0: And Carl and John, you're actually doing Kenny Rogers. That skill to not went to do that and we're not to do that is the skill of evaluative thinking.
2: Awesome. Um, We have one last question here and we're going to let it be one of the questions that some of our listeners did want to ask you and it is about class size. Sean Seely is asking if you figured out or, or if you've done more research on why class size isn't a larger factor in student success. He feels like... Um, his district is kind of using your research to overload class size because that effect size isn't as high as some of the other strategies. So,
0: yes, it's a particularly hot topic in your state province at the moment. I was about to say that. I was going to
2: say this is a a hot topic for us right now too. So we're wondering your thoughts on this.
0: Well, firstly, let's start with the evidence. The evidence says the average effect of class size is reducing class size is about 0.1 to 0.2. Now, what that means, guys, it's reducing class size enhances achievement. It's a positive effect size. And anybody who argues that they should increase class size is ignoring the evidence. The only reason you could do that is if the effect size was negative, and it is not. The second part of it is is accepting the evidence and asking the question, why is that effect of class size so relatively small compared to what many of us would expect? And certainly I've done the research on that. Has others looked at that? And it turns out there is a very simple reason. If you take a teacher in a class size of 25 to 30 and you put them in a class of 15 to 20, and they teach the same way, who's surprised? And certainly what we've done over the years is we've learned in classes of 25 to 30 to use modifications of a talent practice model. We tell, they practice. We talk a lot. We ask lots of questions. The absolutely irony of this is that when you research teachers who go into classes of 15 to 20, they do more talent practice. They actually talk more. There is less feedback. There is less group work. And so that's why the effect size is so small. Imagine if we reduce the class size and we change the nature of the teaching. Now, I can only find one study in the world that's ever asked that question. And so reducing class size has not enhanced learning to any major effect. Could it? Yes, it could. But we're not asking the right question. We're not asking about the different nature of teaching. Like if I said to you guys tomorrow, I'm going to put you in a class of 500, which is the typical class I teach at university, the nature of your teaching would have to change very quickly. It's the same notion going from 30 to 15, and we typically haven't done it. So accept the evidence is low accept the evidence that it has not made a difference and ask the question, can we come up with ways of enhancing it? Because if you go to smaller classes and you change your teaching methods, it could work. But let me leave you with one comment. Over the last 200 years, we've worked out pretty well how to teach in large classes. Most of the studies in visible learning are based on classes of 25 to 30. There are some unbelievable, stunning teachers out there who have learned how to have pretty important and major effects in classes of 25 to 30. I want to understand them and I have to seriously ask if those teachers are then put in classes of 15, 15 kids are deprived of great teachers.
1: As you were mentioning this, I'm so happy that we had an opportunity to ask that question from Sean on Twitter, because as I'm flipping to the chart, and I know you had referenced earlier, it's not just about the chart, but I'm looking at even the top 30 of the approaches with high effect sizes, and I'm looking at so many of them that we could do more effectively if we did them with a smaller class size, and maybe that class size effect size would change, like feedback, like feedback is 10 on this particular list. Response to intervention, number three, like I'm picturing this idea of small group instruction, but if I'm just gonna continue to teach to the whole audience and not really worry about actually taking that and trying to do something different with the fewer students that I have to build that teacher-student relationship with, and just to really interact with on a daily basis... I can only imagine that over time that those numbers would change. I'm sure you're right. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, John, listen, we know you are a incredibly busy person. We really want to thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. But before we go, is there anything coming up on the horizon that you want to share with the audience as well as where they can learn more about John Hattie and the visible learning work that you are always doing and diving deeper into?
0: Well, yeah, as I mentioned earlier, we released uh, all the data last week on a website called Metarex, and I don't want to be commercial here, guys, but the Corwin Publishing Company in America uh, oversee all the implementation of my work. As you can imagine, I'm the researcher, I sit in the back room, I talk a lot, but I've got a team out there that implements visible learning around the world and in your country, and so if you go to the Corwin Visible Learning Plus site, you'll find all the resources you'll need and lots more, so I welcome you to use that.
2: Awesome stuff. So, John, again, we want to thank you for joining us here, and we hope you enjoy the rest of, I guess, your morning.
0: It is. And look, John and Carl, thank you so much. And as you can imagine, having done my PhD in Canada, I owe your country a tremendous amount. Love it dearly. And I wish all of you the very best in your enjoyment of your summer. Awesome. Thank you very
2: much. We
0: want to thank
1: John again for spending some time with us to share his insights with us and
2: you, the Math Moment Maker community. As always, how will you reflect on what you've heard from this episode? Have you written ideas down, drawn a sketch note, sent out a tweet, called a colleague? Be sure to engage in some form of reflection to ensure that that learning sticks. Also,
1: the Making Math Moments
2: That Matter podcast is excited to bring you the Make Math
1: Moments with Corwin Mathematics book giveaway. That's right. We're giving away 10 books from Corwin Mathematics, including John's book, Visible Learning. Plus, you'll receive special Corwin discounts and digital downloads just for entering the draw. You can get in on the giveaway by visiting makemathmoments.com forward slash giveaway by Wednesday, July 31st,
2: 2019. Listening after Wednesday, July 31st, 2019 don't sweat it. We are always actively running giveaways. So check out makemathmoments.com forward slash giveaway to learn about our current giveaway that's going on right now.
1: Don't miss out. Dive in at makemathmoments.com forward slash giveaway. That's makemathmoments.com forward slash giveaway. In order to ensure you don't miss out on any episodes as they come out each week, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or on your favorite podcasting platform. Also, if you're liking what you're hearing, do us a favor, share the podcast with a colleague and help us reach a wider audience by leaving us a review on iTunes and tweet us your biggest takeaway by tagging at MakeMathMoments
2: on Twitter. Show notes and links to resources from this episode can be found at MakeMathMoments.com forward slash episode 35. Again, that's MakeMathMoments.com forward slash episode 35. Well, until next time, I'm Kyle Pierce. And I'm John Orr. High fives for us. And high fives for you.